you have a Bible, open it up to Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to be in verses 10 through 25. And uh, like Tyler just said, we're going to finish the book of Hebrews this morning. And uh, you guys are just about out of here for the summer. If you are around for the summer, we do still have college class here at 11 a.m. We'll take a couple of weeks off between the spring and the summer. So uh, we will be back on May 29th at 11 a.m. No 6 p.m. during the summer. And uh, we do still have growth groups as well during the summer. And we'll get you all more info about that if you are here. So we hope that some of you are. And uh, for those of you who are, we look forward to spending the summer with you. All right, Hebrews chapter 13. I'm going to start in verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Christ Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful that in your word we find life and we find the testimony of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who died for us and rose again, and he paid the penalty of all of our sins and in doing so has ushered us into the presence of God, that we can know you in a way that those under the law could not, that we can worship you and experience your presence and your life in amazing and wonderful ways. So Father, we pray that you would move us now as we study your word to be faithful to the principles it teaches. We pray that you would allow us to live in such a way as to reflect the grace of Jesus Christ given to us. We thank you for all of this, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, most of you have probably seen the old movie, It's a Wonderful Life, usually watched around Christmas time. In fact, for years, my wife and I, that was our Christmas movie. We used to watch it on Christmas Eve. Uh, We stopped after a few years because one or both of us always would fall asleep halfway through the movie. All right, now I'm not saying it's a bad movie. In fact, it's a great movie. It's just that the best parts of the movie are about the last 30 minutes of the movie. The first hour and a half to two hours, they set up the story of George Bailey. And George Bailey, played by James Stewart, is a small town guy. 
and he grows up and lives in the same little town, Bedford Falls, his whole life. And uh, he's a little bit bitter about that. Uh, He's angry about the fact that he never got to go out into the world and experience the world like his uh, brother did and like his friends did. But instead, he was stuck in Bedford Falls running his father's building and loan. And he becomes increasingly distressed about his life as the movie goes on. And finally, he hits a crisis in his life where one of his relatives, who also works at the bank, loses an $8,000 deposit, which back in 1939 was a whole lot of money. Loses an $8,000 deposit, and so he is accused, George is accused of misappropriation of funds, and he's destined to go to jail, and he goes to a bridge outside of town, and he is ready to end his life. And uh, it's right about then that the movie starts getting good, right? Because then Clarence the angel shows up, and you know, Clarence is trying to earn his wings, and so uh, he comes up with a plan to uh, show George what would life be like without you? What would Bedford Falls be like without you? So for about 25, 30 minutes, we go on that journey with George and we see how the world is irrevocably altered because of his presence. And uh, George comes back into his normal life again and he's all of a sudden joyful at life and he runs down the street and you remember he just goes, Merry Christmas, Bedford Falls, right? And he runs through the streets, Merry Christmas, you wonderful old building and alone. And he goes home and when he goes home, He's greeted with a beautiful sight, and that is his wife is rejoicing and his friends are there and they're rejoicing because they have put together all of the money and more that he needed to pay back the debt that he owed. And so he gets this gigantic bowl just piled high with cash, right? And at the end, you know, he remembers Clarence's words, no man is poor who has friends, little bell rings, and that tells us an angel uh, gets his wings, right? Uh, That is uh, theologically questionable, right? But it makes for a good movie, okay? And that's how the movie ends. I hope I haven't spoiled it. It did come out in 1939, so if you haven't seen it by now, you're a little bit late. But uh, that last scene always strikes me because I think, how do you respond, if you're George Bailey, to a gift like that? You got a pile of cash. Your life has been saved by your friends who gave you all of this money. Uh, It actually brings me back to a time in my life uh, when something similar actually happened to my wife and me. Uh, When we were first married, uh, we faced a uh, medical issue. I had some problems with my heart, had to go to the hospital, get all kinds of tests, treatments, and uh, we did not have the kind of insurance to cover it. And all of a sudden, we found ourselves faced with all of these mounting medical bills, wondering how we were going to pay it. Or were we just going to be in debt? Was I going to have to drop out of seminary? How are we going to handle it? And uh, one day, a friend from our church walked up and he said, hey, a few people found out about your situation and they wanted to help you out. And he handed me an envelope with uh, thousands of dollars inside. And uh, then the church wrote a check to cover the rest of what we owed. And I stood there and I thought, how in the world do you respond to a gift like that? Your first instinct is to try to pay it back somehow. But then I quickly scrapped that idea. I realized there was no way I could do that. I didn't have the money. And so then you start to think, how am I supposed to respond? And the best thing I could come up with is this, that in response to that gift, I have to look at that gift as an expression of their love for me, an expression of their faith in me. And I say, you know what? I'm going to finish school. I'm going to try to be a godly, uh, worthy minister to uh, be worthy of their faith in me in some way. I'm going to rejoice, I'm going to give thanks, and then I'm going to move forward and live my life in light of the blessing of that gift. 
to say, I can't pay it back. There's nothing I can do to make me really worthy of it. But what I can do is live consistently with the love and the faithfulness and the trust that they've shown to me. As we get into the last section of the book of Hebrews, our author is going to ask us the question finally, how now do we respond to a lavish gift that God has given us in Jesus Christ, one that we cannot pay back? If you believe that there's a way with your life that you can pay back what Jesus did for you on the cross, what Jesus did when he rose from the dead, if you believe there's a way you can pay it back, you're absolutely wrong. You can't. You already belong to God. Jesus gave an infinite gift. There's no way you can pay it back. So what do you do? How do you respond? What our author says is you respond by living in keeping with the gift that was given. You respond by saying, my life now belongs to God through Jesus Christ, and so I will offer up my life as a living sacrifice, not because I can earn the gift. In other words, I can never earn what God has freely given. The gift was free. When I believed in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins, I received eternal life, not based on anything that I did. But now I am called in response to that gift to be a living sacrifice. As Jesus gave himself for me, I now say, I want to give myself for Jesus Christ and his purposes. I want to give myself for his people in the world so the world might know him. So yeah, I can't pay back the gift. All I can do is seek to live in response by praising him, by serving him, by sharing him with the world. And that's where the author of Hebrews is going to go. That's the final thought. How do we respond to this lavish and wonderful gift of Jesus Christ? So as we start in verse 10, the first thing he's going to do is remind us again of the gift of Jesus Christ. He's going to say, remember what Christ has done. And again and again throughout this book, remember our author has brought us to this place where he said, Jesus Christ is better, is better than anything else. He's better than Judaism. He's better than than whatever career you might be seeking. He's better than whatever earthly relationship you might place your hopes in. He's better than your reputation. He's better than anything else. That's where we started the year. That's where we end the year. And now he says, we remember what Jesus has done one last time before we close the book to remind ourselves of the greatness of his sacrifice, that if anything else drives your life besides worship and praise of Jesus, then your priorities are off. Verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. All right. Some of you may have watched this past week, the royal wedding. Anybody get up early and watch that? Okay. Okay. Nobody. Wow. I don't believe that. Okay. Yeah, we got, all right. Thank you, Caroline. Few of you guys got up early. Um, We were talking about it probably a week or two ago. And uh, my daughter, our six-year-old daughter was at the table and we started talking about this wedding. And uh, she said, are we going to see the wedding? And my wife said, well, maybe I'll get up early in the morning. We can get up and we'll watch it. And uh, Elizabeth said, are we going to, do we, can we go to the wedding? And uh, I said, no, I'm afraid not. Well, she says, why not? Well, 
a mistake was made, and uh, I did not receive my invitation, right? So uh, I cannot go to the wedding, unfortunately. So uh, we have to watch it on TV, along with the other two billion people who were watching it, and the million or so people who gathered around Westminster Abbey and then followed the couple all the way over to Buckingham Palace and gathered around Buckingham Palace to try to get just the smallest glimpse. And they stood outside while this wedding was taking place and they stood outside while this reception was taking place and these people went inside and uh, there were millions of people watching on site from outside. There were billions watching around the world. You know how many were inside the wedding and the reception? About 600 And only those 600 people got the privilege of going in and watching the ceremony live. And only those 600 people got the privilege of going in and eating that wonderful British food that we all talk so highly of, right? And uh, they went in and they got to eat that food and rejoice with the couple. But only a few. The rest of us had to sit outside. It's a great picture of the practice of the law in the Old Testament. Men and women want to know God. Don't you want to know God? I want to know God. I want to be close to God. I want to draw near to him in worship. And under the law, the situation was this, that God had chosen his people and he had brought them out of Egypt and he had placed this tabernacle in their midst where his presence dwelled. But guess what? Only a few people got to go in and eat of the sacrifices and share in those sacrifices and witness them. Only a few people got to go in. Everybody else had to sit outside. And they believed that the priests were the way that they had access to God. And so that's why this group of people here in Hebrews 13 and in the book of Hebrews, they're tempted to go back to Judaism because they're experiencing conflict and pressure for their faith. And they say, maybe the best thing is to go back to a sure system where we have access to God through these priests. And these priests go right in to the holy of holies before God. And here's what the author of Hebrews says, in Jesus Christ, you and I have an altar that those priests can't even eat from. They cannot Approach God like you can. Even the high priest on the day of atonement cannot approach God to the same extent that you can in Jesus Christ. You have an altar from which they have no right to eat. The the priests were allowed to eat certain elements of the sacrifices that were made in the temple or in the tabernacle, right? There were peace offerings and certain sin offerings that portions of the animal would be sacrificed. And then in order for their them to have sustenance, the priests would actually eat portions of the animal or of the grain that was offered. But there were certain sacrifices they could not eat from. And one of those was the sacrifice made for the sins of the priests and the sins of the people on the Day of Atonement. You remember this Day of Atonement imagery works its way all the way through Hebrews, where on the highest holy day of the Jewish calendar, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, only time. And he would sacrifice two animals, one for his sins and one for the sins of the people. Those animals he could not eat from. The priest could not eat from. Instead, they would take the carcasses of those animals, whatever was left over. They'd take it outside the camp and they'd light it on fire. And they couldn't eat from it because it was holy. It was completely reserved for God. And they weren't to touch it. That's what's going on here in Hebrews 13. He says, in Jesus Christ, we have an offering like that offering made on the Day of Atonement that the priest can't touch. You can't get in through the Holy of Holies. You only get in through Jesus Christ. So he says, the access you have to God in Jesus Christ is so much better even than those priests who had limited access to God 
at certain times of the year. And he says it may look like Jesus' death on a cross outside the gates of the town may look to you like that death was a death of shame and reproach when in reality that death is our pathway to know God, to have access. So he says you and I need to boldly go outside the camp and rejoice and identify with Jesus Christ, even in the middle of a culture that says Jesus is not worth it. Even in the middle of a culture that says you're better off if you walk a different path. He says, no, you freely go outside the camp and you bear the reproach of Jesus Christ because you know that we have a lasting city. Our home isn't here. And those who follow Jesus Christ are building into an eternal kingdom where they will receive eternal reward that will last far beyond the pleasures of this one. So he says, remember what Jesus Christ has done for you. And in light of that, he's going to say, you offer up now your life as a sacrifice. Like I said, everybody wants to know God. I want you to imagine just for a minute how unbelievably wonderful it is that in Jesus Christ, you have better access to God than the highest holy man in the nation of Israel. If you know Jesus Christ, God lives in you. His spirit dwells in you. And he promises to empower you for his service. When you sing and you pray and you worship, he listens When you ask for forgiveness for your sins, he grants it. You don't need that intermediary, that high holy priest anymore because you have greater access. So he says, in light of that, remember, Jesus is greater than anything you could pursue. As you go through college, as you get married, as you have kids, as you begin to build a career and a house and a portfolio, never forget that your life, all of it, all of it belongs to Jesus. Every breath you take, Every moment you have, every dollar you spend, it all belongs to him. And so he says, in light of that, you make your life a sacrifice. You offer up your very life as a living sacrifice to Jesus. Instead of sacrificing goats and sheep to draw close to God, now we offer up our lives. Day after day after day. Okay, he's not talking about being a martyr, all right, and going down in a blaze of glory. Uh, Actually, relatively speaking, being a martyr is probably easier than what he's talking about in this passage. Martyrdom occurs at a moment in time in one final blaze of glory. What he's talking about is a day-by-day-by-day process whereby you surrender your life to God and you no longer live for yourself, but you live for Jesus Christ. Uh, Whenever I do a wedding, I usually tell the, uh, the couple, especially the man, I say, you know, I know that you would be willing to die for this woman. That's how you feel right now. And we know you would. We don't doubt that. The question is, will you be willing to die daily for her? Or are you going to be a guy that says, I would die for her, but I will not give her the remote control. It's mine, right? I own it. Or will you set aside your rights and live for someone else? All right, that's what he's calling us to do in these next few verses. Set aside your rights, set aside your life, and make your life a living, constant, burning sacrifice to Jesus Christ. There was a constant sacrifice in the temple of incense that went up before God and it constantly burned before God as a pleasing aroma. And I think that's part of the imagery here is you make your life that constant pleasing aroma to God with what you watch, what you think, what you say, what you do. You offer up your life as a sacrifice. And the first way that he challenges us to do that is in verse 15. 
to praise him constantly. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Constantly praising him with your mouth, right? Not just here on Sunday morning when we sing songs, but throughout the week as God works in your life, as God extends to you his grace. It doesn't mean that every five seconds you have to say, praise Jesus, right? And someone says, let's go to the movies. You go, praise Jesus, let's go, right? Okay, that is taking God's name in vain. That's actually not what he's telling us to do. Right, instead, what he's saying is that in every aspect of your life, as God gives, as God leaves, you acknowledge him in your heart. And then yes, with your lips, if God grants you something gracious, if God provides for you as you go through school, if God provides for you a job, if God provides for you joy, you acknowledge him and you say, Lord, I thank you. I acknowledge that this blessing in my life that I have right now, it comes from you, it belongs to you, and I give it back to you. And I will use it for your purposes and not my own. And God is calling us to be men and women who live with the joy and the enthusiasm of the life that Jesus has given. And I don't know about you guys, I can only speak for myself, but I I do sometimes tend to be a person who struggles with cynicism and criticism and complaining. And as I've had kids and I see my kids struggle with this, it's reflected back to me and I go, uh, I didn't teach them how to whine directly, but I probably modeled it. And yet God is calling us to be people who with our lips, our mouths, we constantly praise him. Most of us don't want to be people who are constantly complaining, whining, when God has given us so much to be grateful for. My brother and I, years ago, took a long road trip all the way up the East Coast, and then we drove kind of up into Canada and all of these different places. Along the way, we stayed in different youth hostels and places like that, and uh, we ran into all kinds of people from all over the world. But I distinctly remember there was this one guy from Western Europe who was traveling through the States, and we asked him, what do you think about uh, what you've seen so far? He's like, ah, it's okay. We're like, well, where'd you go? He's like, I I went to the Grand Canyon. It's all right. Wasn't that, you know, wasn't that big. They're like, really? I've been there. I mean, it seemed pretty big to me, right? Rockies, he thought, were not as good as the mountains in Europe. Uh, the uh, Niagara Falls was kind of cheap and dumb. You know, like everything this guy had seen, he complained about. And we were like, why, why don't you just stay where you were, right? If everything back home was better, why didn't you stay? And, and I, as I reflect on that, I think, I don't want to be the kind of person that constantly finds fault said, I want to be the kind of person that constantly praises God. Say, God, thank you. I have a body that works. I have a mouth that can praise you. I've got a heart and emotions with which I can turn my mind and heart toward you and your beauty. I've got friends. I've got family. I've got a roof over my head. I've got clothes on my back. And I've got the blessings of God in Jesus Christ and eternal life to boot. All that comes from God. All that belongs to God. So he says, yeah, you sing praise songs every day. I wonder if you sing in your car. I know you probably do in the shower, right? You guys sing all the time. The songs you sing, are they directed back to God? The thoughts that you have, the praise that you give, do you praise God? It says praise him constantly. Second way we make our life a sacrifice is to love others lavishly. Verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. He says, you look around you in the community of believers 
as well as those in the world. And you say, I'm going to share what I have because again, everything I have comes from God. It will go back to God. It belongs to God. And so I don't need to cling to my things. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago when he talked about hospitality. I don't have to cling to the stuff I have, whether it's my favorite shirt or whether it's my car or whether it's my space. And often we get very stressed if somebody invades those things or takes them. And he says, no, love others lavishly with those things. You can't take them with you. Look around for those who have needs and be the kind of people who love others wholeheartedly because Jesus Christ has loved you that way. And so you offer up your life as this kind of a sacrifice of love to God and to others. I have to be really, really honest with you guys. I I do get tired from time to time of hearing accusations that Christians are unloving or unkind or judgmental. And I think to a certain extent, sometimes that is true of certain groups of Christians. But the reality is that throughout history, Christians have been the ones who have loved the best with the widest arms open to those who are hurting and in pain and sick and needy. And that's who we want to be. I told you guys, I mentioned them a couple times this morning. I have three kids and part of growing up with siblings, I, I grew up with two brothers. Part of growing up with siblings is you learn kind of how to get along in a small space with somebody that sometimes you like, sometimes you don't. Somebody who might want to share your stuff might not, might not want to. And every so often in our house, uh, my wife and I might be talking and we may just hear suddenly a blood-curdling scream like, ah! You know, we, we run in the other room and we think, who, who lost their ear? Or, you know, what happened? Okay. And when you walk in there, sometimes the dispute is about a toy, Right? Uh, for example, we have these things called weebles in our house. Some of you may have had weebles when you were a kid. And kind of, here, here's, some, here's a picture of some weebles, okay? They're cute, aren't they? Yeah, they're really, really sweet. And uh, the, uh, the weebles are one of my kids' favorite toys. And sometimes you'll hear this kind of a scream, and you come in, and the dispute is about one of these guys. Okay, now we have about 20 of them. But somebody took the one that somebody else wanted and Instead of asking for it back, it turned into just this terrifying, horrifying, blood-curdling scream. Right now, I look at those and I go, would you hurt someone over that? I... No, I wouldn't, right? Okay, but let me ask you this. What if, what if I put a picture of your car up there? If I put a picture of your wallet up there? Picture of your favorite blouse? <laughs> Gentlemen, I know you've got one, Right? What if it was your food? And I put that picture up there and I say, would you get angry or resentful or cling to that if someone tried to take it away? The answer is yes. For us then, that means at the moment we're missing what this verse is challenging us to do. With everything you have, you give it back to God because it belongs to him in the first place. He owns it. He owns you. He owns me. And so Christians, we ought to be the ones that open our arms the widest and love others the best because we've been given the gift of God in Jesus Christ and our lives are a sacrifice. Third main way that we make our life a sacrifice is by obeying authority cheerfully. Verses 17 to 19, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. All right, it seems like a strange command in the midst of these others. Okay, praising God, I get that. Loving others, I get that. Why obedience to authority? Why would that be the thing that he brings up? 
And I think the reason is this, because Jesus Christ is the highest demonstration of, of submission to authority that we have. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he's crucified, he says, God, if there's any way you can take this from me, please do it. But not my will, but your will. Frequently, Jesus tells us how he submits to the will of his father. Even though Jesus is equal to God, he chooses to submit for the sake of his father and for the sake of those he came to save. And it was hard to submit. So obedience to authority reflects that we trust God. It reflects the character of Jesus Christ. It reflects we trust that God has placed authority in our lives for a reason. And yes, at times there may be authorities that tell us to do something that is directly opposed to the word of God, in which case I don't think we're called to obey. And we see that in scripture. But for the most part, I'd say 95% of the time, we're called to submit and submit joyfully. That's hard to do. I think the other reason he challenged us to obey authority is because it's ultimately a reflection of love for the community around us. If I doubt and mistrust the authority in my life, whether it's at church, whether it's at school, whether it's at work, if I do that, that introduces poison and wreaks havoc on the community. And it's easy to submit when my leaders are good and they're making decisions that I basically agree with. It's a lot harder when their decisions may seem questionable to me or when I don't like them, or I don't agree. Those are the moments that I think we're called to submit. And if you have a hard time submitting, I think he challenges us, don't gossip or backbite or disobey. Instead, pray. Pray. If you have a boss or a professor you have a hard time with, I wonder if you've ever prayed for him. God would give them wisdom. God would bless their leadership. See what happens. Uh, Years ago, 10 or 15 years ago, before I, I worked here, I worked at a, another church in another town. And um, my job was to lead the worship at this church. And uh, there was another, another man and I who kind of shared the worship leading duties. I led one service, he led the other. And over the course of the time that I was there, I was there for a few years. And uh, toward the end of my time, uh, it became apparent that they were going to move in a different direction with the worship leadership. And so me and, and this other guy We both were going to lose our jobs and they were going to hire another guy to kind of take over the whole thing. So as you can imagine, somebody comes to you and they say, you know what, your job is no longer needed. Uh, That's a tough thing to swallow. Uh, The other guy got frustrated. He literally didn't show up the next week and he quit right away. They had asked me to stick around for a couple of months and help the transition. And for some reason, I just felt that God was calling me, even though at times I felt a little bit frustrated that my job was gone. I felt called to stay and just do my best. And yeah, there were, there were mornings I went and I just frankly didn't really feel it. I didn't want to be there. I wanted to quit. At one point, they even asked me, after I'd been leading, they asked me to step back and uh, take a backup role to one of the other uh, leaders, the guy that they were going to bring in. And so I'm standing there playing piano for my replacement and thinking, this is not fun. And uh, there was a meeting in which they discussed all these changes, and I happened to go to the meeting, and somebody in the midst of it said, what I want to know is, what, is, what does Matt think about all this? And, uh, you know, I, I had a choice right at that moment that I could have gotten up and I could have said, I think it's a big mistake, see you suckers, right, and walked out the door, okay? But for whatever reason, again, I just felt God saying, you're under authority. You don't like the decision. You may not agree with the decision, but you're called to submit. And so I went up to the front and I just said, you know, 
think God has put these leaders at this church for a reason. I don't know what his plan is, but I'm going to trust, and I'd encourage everybody to trust the leadership. They know what they're doing. And I sat down, right? Very simple. I've never received more feedback on a sermon or anything I've said than those four sentences. People saying, well, that, that just really brought the church together. It was unbelievable. It was amazing. And I think the reason is because we live in a culture that is so anti-authority that anytime somebody says, I'm going to kind of buck the trend, right? And I'm not perfect. Believe me, there are days here that I get frustrated with my authorities. There are days that I don't want to submit. And that's not because they're bad. It's because I'm sinful. But as we pursue God's purposes, I think what we'll see is all of a sudden there's a unity in the body of Christ that he can bring, even if it means we sacrifice our pride. So he says, obey authority cheerfully as a reflection of the fact that you are a living sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You praise God with your lips. You love others lavishly. You obey authority cheerfully. And those are tall orders. How do we do it? And that's the last point in our text. Trust Jesus to empower you for the task. I'm just going to do verses 20 through 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And he's got these final greetings. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Verses 20 to 21 I want to focus on. Here's what he says. My prayer for you is that God will equip you for his service. He says, Hebrew men and women, I know that you're struggling. I know that it's hard to live for Jesus in the middle of this world that is pressing you to do something different, that's pressing you to defy authority, that's pressing you to be grumbly and complaining and whiny, that's pressing you to acknowledge yourself instead of God. That's pushing you not to love, but to hoard. He says, I know it's hard. And so he says, what I pray for you day after day after day is that God would equip you. And how will God equip you? God will equip you in the same way that he rose Jesus Christ from the dead through the power of his spirit that now lives in you. If you want to be a man or woman of God, the answer is not to look within and find the hidden talents that you have to be good The answer is to get on your knees before the God who raised Jesus from the dead and say, God, I don't know how to obey. I don't know how to have a good attitude toward authority, but I want it. Through your spirit, give it to me. I don't know how to love other people. I'm selfish. I love my weebles. I want to keep them. Help me to give. God, help me to praise you. I struggle. I'm a cynical, complaining person. I want to praise you. So he says, you trust Jesus to empower you for the task. Some of you guys are about to leave for good. Some of you are just leaving for the summer. And the temptation as you go away may be to think, you know, I'm just, I'm just one guy. I'm just one girl. Can God really use somebody like me to transform my family, to transform a culture, to transform my friends, to know Jesus Christ? Can he use me? And the answer, biblically, is yeah. Through the power of the Spirit in you, God can do all things. So will you be a man or woman who responds to the gift of God in Jesus Christ 
by offering up your whole life as a living sacrifice, even when it's difficult and even when it's hard. As we close, I just want to show a video quickly of one of your fellow students, a young woman who goes here, she's involved here, and has wrestled with some of these very issues. And uh, again, she'd say the same thing as I just said. She's not perfect. She's not completely holy, but she is beginning to learn how to walk with God and to offer her life as a living sacrifice, even when it's difficult, in light of what Jesus has done and seen Jesus do some amazing things in her life. All right, so I want to show you guys this video, and then I'll be back up in just a moment. Hi, my name's Chamilla, and this is my story of grace. I'm a junior at Texas A&M. I grew up Buddhist in a Buddhist family. My parents grew up in Sri Lanka and moved to the States to, to get their higher education degrees. I grew up in that way, going to temple regularly, and then I came to A&M. I hadn't ever spoken about Buddhism to anyone. I just um, had a lot of questions about the pain I saw in the world. I, I, I realized that if there was a God, I couldn't imagine us being a proper representation of Him with our selfishness and our pride and the way we hurt others um, and the way we are hurt. That's where I was when I was walking on campus one day and I saw a Gideon man who was handing out New Testaments. I remember, I actually remember this, putting it immediately in my pocket because I didn't want anyone to see that I had taken it. I just went back to my dorm room and started reading Matthew and that's when I learned about Jesus and just what his purpose was and the solution to all these problems I had seen and like what it was called, which is sin. And so end of freshman year, um, I accepted the Lord and I was really just happy and wanting to tell my family. I, I told my mother first, thinking that she would have the better reaction. I told her and she was just, just heartbroken, I would say, and really disgusted slash disappointed. Um, it was just a very immediate reaction. When I just said the word Christian, it was just like a like recoil. She thought I had just become a completely different person and she couldn't recognize me anymore. And um, she just said that she didn't want to have anything to do with me. And so that January, my sophomore year, she told me that until I accepted the truth about my family, but also about Buddhism and Christianity and things, and I kind of came to my senses and um, that she didn't want anything to do with me and she would keep her distance. She only wanted a relationship with me once we could kind of be on the same page. So that was about 14 months ago and I haven't spoken with her since. Um, I've tried numerous ways and um, different times but haven't been able to reach her. Like for me as a woman, I always wanted to have a good relationship with my mother and, and to have like um, have what other girls have in their mother um, like a, a, a friend but also someone who's gentle and loving and um, <laughs> and so I have found through these past 14 months that all those qualities that I wanted in a mother and a father as well because um, my relationship with my father isn't um, how I would like it per se. I found that in the Lord, these qualities are infinitely more so available. And I'm so thankful for that because just to know Him and 
to to get to experience these characteristics of himself that could be found perhaps in slivers in a human being, but in him are so just full and deep and are accessible to me at any time that I, since I know him and I can pray to him. I felt his comfort in multiple ways, I would say. He's really comforted me through his word and through Grace, um, the community here. I love Grace College. I love going there and I love sermons and the people. I've been blessed in the comfort he's provided. When I think about it, my first thought would be how he's completely changed my life. I never thought I would be a Christian. Like I never, it was, I was very detached to the idea growing up. It's crazy to think that I attend church and love reading the Bible and just know him and pray and there's so many things I just never thought would happen. Once again, my name's Chimola and I've experienced grace. Camilla would tell you, if you talk to her also, that other members of her family have trusted Christ. God has used her here at this church to reach out to international students and, and to you guys, to many of you who I know have been impacted by her life. And so the reason I show it is to say, can a college student make a difference if you submit your life to Jesus Christ? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, most great movements of God throughout the last several hundred years have been at the initiative of college students. I've told you guys the stories in the past, but the reason we have a missions movement in this country is because ultimately a handful of college students have said, we're going to offer our lives to what God is going to do around the world in view of the surpassing gift of Jesus Christ. So as you leave for the summer, if you're leaving for good, I just want to challenge you, offer up your life as a living sacrifice to him with your mouth, with your actions, with your thoughts, everything you are. We're going to sing one song as we close, and uh, then I'll pray for us and we'll be done. But let's offer this song up as a sacrifice of praise to God. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Father, we, uh, we can't find words to express uh, the greatness of Jesus' sacrifice for us, and uh, what it means, Father, that we have life, eternal life, and we have life now. So, Father, make us the kinds of living sacrifices who burn brightly for your kingdom, for your values. Let us love like no one else loves. Let us praise you with full hearts of praise. Let us obey and submit to you and to our leaders. Father, let us have an impact for this world that extends well beyond these walls, well beyond this town transform the world for Jesus Christ. Father, if there are any in here this morning who do not yet know you through Jesus Christ, I pray they would believe now that Jesus died for our sins and rose again so we can have life. Father, I pray you would bring them to you, give them eternal life. And now for all of us, Father, move in us through your spirit, transform us into your image and make us who you want us to be. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We'll see you next week.